there is an interview that I want to relate to you this morning as I begin. Uh, I read this online in uh, DesiringGod.com. A Cistercian abbot. This is the order uh, of monks who are silent for a long period of time. Uh, anyways, he was interviewed on Italian television. The interview was especially interested in the Cistercian uh, tradition of living in silence and solitude. And so he asked this particular abbot, and what if you were to realize at the end of your life that atheism is true and that there is no God? Tell me, what if that were true? The abbot thought for a moment and replied, holiness, silence, and sacrifice are beautiful in themselves. Even without promise of reward, I still would have used my life well. Think about that for a moment. Holiness, silence and sacrifice are beautiful in themselves. I use my life well. I think if we were to ask the Apostle Paul that very question, he would have a different answer. Because he did have a different answer. Paul says, if there's no resurrection, if for only this life we hope, this is in 1 Corinthians 15, if for only in this life we have hope, we are the most to be pitied. In other words, if, if the decisions that I've made in my life and the, the career I've chosen and the place I've decided to live, all of those things, if there were no resurrection... My life would be absurd, absolutely absurd, says Paul. Listen to what he says later in that chapter in 1 Corinthians. Now, if there's no resurrection, then why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus, Paul says, with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's, that's what Paul said. Very different answer to what if there's no God? What if there's no resurrection? Now, when he says, let us eat and drink, my first reaction when I read that in 1 Corinthians 15, I thought, he says, to heck with it. Let's just drink. Let's get drunk. Let's eat. Let's be gluttonous. But I don't think that's what Paul means. And here's why. The person that drinks to get drunk becomes addicted to alcohol or other drugs and then lives this horrible life. And the person that eats without any hesitation or any limitations he becomes unhealthy and leads a horrible life. Paul isn't saying let's lead a horrible life. Paul isn't saying anything about destroying himself at all. He's saying, I die every day because there's a resurrection. If there's no resurrection, I'm going to live every day. So what Paul is saying is, be normal. Do you see that? Be normal. Don't have any risks in your life. Minimize those. And eat and drink to be happy for right now. Because if, if I'm facing terrible things in Ephesus and I only have human hopes, what have I gained? The answer, Paul would say, is nothing. 
Now, that thought kind of hit me because we have such a thing called the American dream. (laughs) And the American dream is dangerous to a Christian. We in high school, Sunday school, and now in another Sunday school here at Christ Community, we are studying the book Radical. And it's exactly what the book title says it is. It's radical. And it's the subtitle is something like how to free us from the American dream, saving us from the American dream. Now, this concept uh, was all throughout the book of John as Paul was preaching this series. And as I took this class in Gordon-Conwell, I, I just kept coming back to this again and again. The, the concept of dying so others can live. What does it mean for me as a Christian to die so that others can live? So we're going to look at that in, in light of John chapter 12, and we'll discover a few things. One is that dying is a strategy. Another might be that dying is for all of us. And finally, we'll look briefly at dying has a reward. Dying has a reward. Okay, first, dying is a strategy. Verse 27 of John 12, if you have your Bibles, you can look at it, says, Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Jesus says, what shall I say? In this moment, Father, save me from this hour. If I had a problem, if I was in suffering, that's exactly what I would say. I would look to God and I would encourage you to look to God. And both of us would pray on my behalf and say, God, save me from this hour. But Jesus says, no, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now, in the book of John, as you study it, if if you were just to have this phrase, dying so others can live. Have that phrase in your head and go back and read the book of John and your eyes will be opened to the the many, many, many times when Christ talked about his own death as a strategy, not as something that happened to him, but that he happened upon. He meant and intentional, intentionally went towards. Look at John 2. This is one of those passages where it doesn't hit you at first, but as you think about it more. All of a sudden, your eyes are open. Listen, John chapter two, you can turn back or you can listen to me. It's a very short little phrase, he says. Remember, this is where Jesus made a whip of cords, went into the temple area, drove out the money lenders and changers and all of the animals. And he said, or his disciples remembered, not not Jesus didn't say this. His disciples remembered after they watched Jesus do this, that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, my immediate thought there is that, well, yes, I'm watching Jesus zealous for God's house, right? He's filled with zeal. But those aren't the words that they remember. Zeal for your house will consume me, not fill me, consume me. Now, if you go back to where that is quoted from, it's an Old Testament verse from Psalm chapter 69. And let me read the context of that. Save me, O God. This is Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold, nothing to put my foot on. I'm sinking. I have come up into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I'm worn out for calling for help. I've been calling and calling and calling, and now I'm worn out from that. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs on my head. Many are the enemies without cause, those who seek to destroy me. Okay, 
I'm adding a little emphasis there. Lord, the almighty, he says, may those who hope in you may not be discouraged because of me. And listen to this. This is it right here. Verse seven of Psalm 69. For I endure scorn for your sake and shame covers my face. I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children for zeal for your house consumes me. Here we have a king in Psalm 69 where his friends and family are turning into his enemies and trying to kill him because he stands zealously for God's house. And because of that stance, people are trying to kill him. Jesus in the temple, driving out people from the temple is standing zealously for God's house. People are now angry because Jesus did this and they're trying to consume him or kill him or devour him. You see that? That's that's Jesus saying or the disciples remembering this is really going to cause his death. Now, the reason I know that's true is because Psalm 69 is contextualized, but also because he turns right around and he says to the, the, the Jews that come up to him and ask him, why? What authority do you have to do this? You remember his answer? Destroy this temple and I'll build it in three days. And they're like Nicodemus on the physical side. How do you be born again? I don't like the Samaritan woman, you know, with the water at the well. And I can't quite get this, the whole water eternal thing that you've got going on. In the same way, the Jews are like, destroy the physical brick temple. And, and then it says this. No, but Jesus was referring to his own body. Jesus over and over and over again in the book of John refers to his own death as if he's walking into it intentionally. OK, he's intentionally doing it. And you, you can look at John 6, I'm the bread of life. If you look there, what, is it, what does it have to become in order for bread to nourish someone to life? It has to be consumed and destroyed. And, and you see this over and over again. Jesus predicts his death explicitly, and then he gives these metaphors that hint at it all the time. And so the question becomes, why is Jesus doing this? Do you know how to tell a false gospel and a true gospel? Uh, what I mean is uh, uh, a history of Jesus. So many gospels have come to light. The gospel according to Thomas or Peter or Mary Magdalene. A lot of these gospels have come to light and books have been written about it. And Christians wonder if they're accurate or not and if we should include this in the in the Bible. But one of the clearest ways you can tell the difference between a true gospel and a false gospel, one that was written hundreds of years later, is the gospel, the true gospel, will lead one place, and that is to the cross. If you think of all the gospels, they're going one place to the cross. So for Jesus Christ, his death is intentional. It is intentional. It is a strategy Maybe this is just Christ, though. We are to see his sacrifice and the sacrifices of a select few Christians, possibly Paul and Peter and maybe a couple other Christians who go off into strange lands. Well, they're special. And they're called in a special way to suffer death for the cause of Christ. The rest of us live decent, upstanding moral lives, doing good works out of gratitude for what Christ did for us, pursuing and praising his name all the more. This is the attitude that most of us, I certainly have. But die, all of us, all of us die. Are we all called to this? My children right now. This is this is the point where it gets a little tricky. But that's my second point. Dying is, in fact, for all of us. 
Look back at John chapter 12, Jesus' words, verse 25. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He uses these grand words, anyone. And he says this, whoever serves me must follow me. Do you know what following Christ means? Going where he goes. Where is Christ going? All the gospels lead to the cross. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant will also be. Now, for Peter, it's true of Peter because Jesus confronted Peter. You remember back in John 21, Paul preached on this passage. John 21, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? Remember that? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Jesus, yes, you know I love you. Come on. I know I denied you three times, but I love you now. I really do. I'm totally resurrected from that and redeemed, and I I got my mind straight. I know what's going on. I love you. Now, I ask the question, why is Jesus asking him, do you love me? Do you love me? Not are you committed to me, are you committed to the cause, but do you love me? Think about that. And then he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, Jesus tells me to feed the sheep. I'm Peter. Fine, I'll feed the sheep. I'll teach. But that's not what Jesus means, is it? When Peter was called to feed the sheep, he was to die so others can live. Now, I'll prove that. Reading on in John chapter 21, verse 18. Very truly, right after he said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, Peter. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. And when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Well, you could be a little confused about that. So the Gospel of John clarifies he said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said, follow me. (laughs) So when we proclaim people of Wilmington, follow Jesus. That's what he means. Dying so others can live. Now, it wasn't just Peter. Paul had it, too. In 1 Thessalonians 1.6. I'm, I'm kind of laboring over this a little bit because I think what I do, and I think many of us make this mistake, is we say there are a select few that are called to die, but not, not many more than that. Not me. It's different for me. Look at 1 Thessalonians 1.6. You became imitators of us. And of the Lord. So you Thessalonians have become imitators of us, of me, Paul, the apostle. And of Jesus Christ, the Lord. For you welcome the message in the midst of severe suffering. For you welcome the message in severe suffering. Okay, now which part of that are the Thessalonians imitating? Are the Thessalonians welcoming the word like Jesus Christ? No, because Jesus is the word. So that's not it. Are the Thessalonians imitating Paul in welcoming the word? Well, not really, because Paul was dragged into Christianity. He was blinded by a light on the road to Damascus. It wasn't something he, we would say he received well. I mean, eventually he did, but, you know. So what, what Paul is getting at in 1 Thessalonians is the severe suffering. He says, you have become imitators of me and Jesus in our suffering, in our severe suffering, he says. And then he says these words in verse 7 of 1 Thessalonians 1. And so you may become a model to all believers in Macedonia and Acacia. 
Richard Wormbrandt. If you haven't heard of his name, he'd be a very good person to get to know. He's dead now, 2001, but you can read about him online and in various other places. He, he was a Jew in Romania, where Sarah Smith um, is, and he turned, into, he turned to a Christian when he was a young person during the time of communism, and he said that communism and Christianity were not compatible, and for his beliefs, he was imprisoned, and he suffered greatly for many, many, many years. I, I was interested to learn this. Richard Wormbrandt spent three years in solitary confinement, 12 feet under the ground, no light, solitary confinement, three years. He said, to keep my sanity, I preached a sermon to myself every night. <laughs> every night I preached to myself. That's kind of talking to yourself. He later wrote a book. Wouldn't it be a great book to read? With God in Solitary Confinement. What a book. He started the organization in, um, in many different countries called The Voice of the Martyrs. It's basically telling the ways that Christians suffer over and over again for the gospel. And he used to ask the question of pastors. He'd sit them down and he would say, pastors, if you had the option of choosing a child that was healthy to raise or choosing a child that was disabled, which one would you choose? It's obvious. And then he would say, but Christ chose it. Do you see that? Christ chose it. There's something about suffering and dying that is the choice of the believer who follows after Christ. So Jesus chose it. It didn't just happen to him. Somehow he's embracing suffering and dying as a strategy. Uh, if, if you think about uh, transporting troops to the place where the battle is, it's very difficult to do that. Troops have a lot of gear and they have a lot of needs. They have to be fed and they have to be comfortable. They have to get to the place safely. They have to get there uh, safely, meaning not getting blown up. And they have to get there pretty quickly because troops are always uh, needed right now. And so in 1952, the U.S. Navy built a ship called the SS United States. The SS United States was the biggest transport ship uh, ever built. It was also the fastest. Let me read you some statistics about this ship that would transport uh, people to the field, uh, soldiers to the battlefield. It cost $78 million in 1952. It went 51 miles an hour. That's fast. It would go 10,000 miles on one tank of gas. And it could carry 15,000 troops. It had armor-plated hulls. It was a massive soldier transport vehicle, huge. If I saw a picture of it next to the Titanic drawn to scale, and the Titanic looked like a dinghy. It was so small. This ship is huge. It's massive. And during the Cold War, the reason they built the ship was because they, they didn't know where communism would strike. And so they needed to be flexible to bring thousands of troops to the next battle that they're going to fight. So that, so that they, they would bring them all there and it would get there as fast as, as possible. But the problem is, no big full-scale world war ever happened. So you, didn't, you know what they did to the SS United States? They turned it into a cruise ship 
for dignitaries and heads of state and high payers who would cruise. 659 staterooms, four dining salons, three bars, two theaters, the first ever cruise ship to ever have a heated pool, and it transported less than 2,000. Let's just ruminate on the difference. If you were on those two ships, what would the difference be? On the SS United States battleship transport, soldiers would prepare for battle. Resources would be conserved. There would be a fast pace to everything they did. There would be purposeful meetings. Think about dinner time talk during that cruise. Thinking about dying so others can live. That's what soldiers do. They put themselves in harm's way so you and I can have a country and live and be protected. So the the mood of that ship is very different. Now, transfer to the SS United States cruise ship. You have patrons enjoying bonbons. You have resources lavishly experienced and consumed. You have a slow, relaxed pace everywhere you go. You have small talk on the deck. You have no concern of the destination whatsoever because the point is the cruise. What is the church? That's my question. According to the scriptures that we've been reading, what do you think this is all about? Is this the SS United States battleship transport to the battlefield? Or is it a cruise? That's very, to me, very difficult because when I came to Christ community, my attitude when I first came in 2004 was I need a church that feeds me. I need a church that keeps me accountable, that gives me instruction, that that helps me grow in my faith, you see. Now, those aren't bad things. I'm not saying that they are. I'm not saying Paul the Apostle would say, or Jesus would say those are bad things. But there's a line there that you cross, and it's, it's very difficult to see that line. It's so hard to, to see it, but, but so easily we come from, I need a church where I come and be fed, to I'm now in relax mode, and this is all about me and my growth, you see. It's very easy just to step over that line and not even know you did it. So that's how I came to Christ community. Now, I reflect back over the years of, of my participation in this body, and I, I, I could list them all out. What are the things that were done for me, and what are the things that I died? And you, you, you might want to do that, because what I discovered was it's a journey. When you come to a church, you start somewhere, but you don't end there. You journey. You go somewhere else. You start, and you need something all about you. You do. You need to learn the gospel. You need to be refreshed every week. You need to recharge your batteries. But there's a point when Jesus and Paul the Apostle, they're pushing you out, and they're saying, I want you to die now. I want you to suffer now. I want you to intentionally take that on so that others can live. So... I'm going to ask you the question. You can ask yourself this question. What is church to you? What do you come here for? What is your attitude as you walk in the doors? Dying so others can live? Or living and letting others wash your feet? What's your attitude? I think what we're here to do is learn how we can die better.
it seems weird, doesn't it? I mean, it is. But that's what we're doing here. We're on the battleship going to the battle. We're learning how we can most efficiently fight in a battle that will most definitely kill us. All right, finally, and this is what we're ending on, dying has a reward. Listen to the words of Christ. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. What do you love? What do you love? That's what you'll die for. What is the object of our love when we die? Hebrews 12 said that Christ endured the cross with something in his mind. He was thinking of something. The joy that was set before him. Your salvation, your living, your life was set before Jesus. And that brought him joy and the joy sustained him. Let's read John 12, verse 24. It says, John 12, verse 24 says, Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. You see, Jesus isn't saying, I like dying. He's not saying, I want you to like dying. He's saying it's necessary to die. But for what? What are we really dying for? Many of us die and we stop there, right? I'm killing idols. I'm dying to myself. But it's still really about yourself, improving yourself, growing yourself, disciplining yourself. And Jesus is saying, no, those are good things. But listen, there's a reason you die. And here he goes in John 12, verse 24. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Seeds bring about new life. And I love this image. I've, I've thought long and deep about this. What does it mean to be a seed that dies and bears new life? Because the life, if you plant a seed here in the ground, it, it doesn't grow over there. It grows right here. And if you were to dig it up, you'd see a seed. And out of which of the seed, it, it comes new life. So that's you, you see. Right out of you, right out of you comes this new life. Right close to home. You die and it comes right out of you. And if you think about it, new life is really exciting to see. It's not just one of the great things of life. It is the great thing in life. Think about the seasons, for example. What makes fall and winter great? Because you look forward to spring. Now, of course, we ski and we like the leaves changing and all that. But just... Just think for a second. The four seasons, you take out spring, you throw it in the trash can. Now you got three seasons. God could have done it that way, I suppose. All right, you have three seasons. Fall, winter, summer. No spring. You see, that, that's pointless. All of the seasons point to spring where new life is created and grown. What makes summer great? What makes um, fall great? What makes winter great is Spring, new life. And here's why we love new life. More than any other thrill you'll ever have in this world, new life is the thrill. And here's why. Because only God can do it. Only God can do it. And once you see this new life being born out of your suffering, out of your death, when has Christ Community Church ever applauded? Yeah, yeah. When, when we baptize somebody, when someone gives their testimony, when when high school students stand up in front and say, thank you for all the things that you've done for me. It's your sacrifice for my life. The, see, new life is what I'm talking about. When we have a testimony just last week, 
And Lena stands up and gives her ten. We clap. We don't clap when someone sings a great song. We do, but we know in back in our minds we're like, oh, this is wrong to clap for that song. It's wrong. But we do sometimes, especially as we especially clap for the performer that's underage. If they're 13. Right. Why? Why do you clap for the 13 year old and you're, you don't have any problem? Clap, but if it's 40 year old, I, uh, I don't want to clap for that. Here's why. Because the 13 year old is growing into a new life. They're being. Why do you like American Idol? You, you, you like a nobody. Right. A nobody with no future. And all of a sudden they go on the show and they're discovered and their talent is is honed and, and their skills are grown. And all of a sudden now there's something really great. And you get to see this progression without that progression. American Idol is nothing. It's new life. It's 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 progressing towards new life. It's growing and it's 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 spring because God is the only one who can do it. And in a spiritual context in the church, that's. That the climax of this ministry, new life, new life, it's God's glory. Look at verse 23 of John 12. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Father, glorify your name. That's the place where God's glory is seen. Uh, Acts 1.8. Jesus says, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. I'm going to get this wrong. Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and all the world. Something like that. I want you to rethink that word witness. First reaction. I want you to be my witnesses. Meaning, you saw me die and rise three days later. Tell others about that. Witness for me. Be a witness. Be a testimonial. Like a legal witness. I saw that happen. But here's another way to think about it. Isaiah, God is speaking to Israel. Israel, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. So that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Do you ever think we're called witnesses? Not only to witness to others so they see, but so that we can see too. As people come to new life. Find the place at Christ community where new life happens and go there. There's something so powerful about it. It will mark you forever. One last thought. Acts chapter 10. Peter goes to Cornelius. Talked about this in Sunday school, but Peter goes to Cornelius this Gentile, someone that Peter didn't think was going to be saved ever. And anyways, God set it up. He blind dated them. <laughs> Cornelius, go see Peter. Peter, go see Cornelius. Boom, they're, they're seeing each other. And it's in a Gentile house and they eat a meal. And Peter explains the gospel. Let me read the words that are so encouraging to me. Acts chapter 10, verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. While Peter was still speaking the words, something dropped out of heaven. For whose sake? Cornelius would be a correct answer. But not just Cornelius. Peter. 
Because listen to what he said. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And Peter said, not Cornelius, Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. You you see that? Peter is a witness. Not only to Cornelius but to himself. When they heard this, they had no further objections about eating with Gentiles. And everyone in Jerusalem praised God, saying, so even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance to life. You can put anybody in there in the Gentile slot there. So even to my neighbor, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So even to Haitians, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So even to a two-year-old in the nursery, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So even to who? Who is it? Find out where God is going to create a new life and go there and die. Sacrifice yourself and watch the life grow out of you. And you will give God glory in a way that you never have before. Let's pray. Father God, these are heavy words and... Difficult to read something that has been in my mind. It's one of the most difficult passages, Lord. I don't I don't know what else to do with this text, but to say that you want us to die so that others can live. Give us courage to die, Lord, in that way. Give us a vision for where to die and where to suffer, where to go. Help us not be about ourselves. God, that we would lift our eyes and that we would yearn for your glory seen in a new life created. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen.